Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It's Thursday, August 31st, 2017. I'm Charlie Matessian, your host this week, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week, we'll cover the politics surrounding Hurricane Harvey and the utter devastation it has brought to Houston and the surrounding areas. We'll also examine the optics surrounding President Donald Trump's response to the disaster and how past presidents have handled major disasters. Our first data point this week is 12. That's the number of years since a major Category 3 or higher hurricane made landfall in the United States before Harvey. Then we'll discuss what's on Congress's fall to-do list. Members will return from their August recess to a crowded agenda. Government funding deadline, debt ceiling fight, tax reform hopes, and the weakening passion for Obamacare repeal. Our second data point this week is 30. There are 30 days between today and September 30th, Congress's deadline for passing a government funding bill. If legislation is not passed, the government will shut down on October 1st. Before we dive in, a reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Politico's Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And we love hearing from listeners, so send us an email at nerdcast at politico.com. Okay, let's get started. Scott Bland is out on paternity leave, but this week we have fan favorite Annie Carney in the studio today. Hello, Annie. Hello, Charlie. We took a listener poll about who should fill in for <laughs> Scott Bland and by an overwhelming majority. Wow. I didn't know I had fans. Yeah. Huge <laughs> fan club, Annie. And Eliana... I cast a thousand votes. <laughs> Eliana is also back. Eliana Johnson from Vacation. Welcome back. Hi. And we're also deeply honored to have Maine's favorite son, Burgess Everett here. Hi, Everett. Hey, how are you? So our first segment today will be on uh, Hurricane Harvey politics. And as you know, Hurricane Harvey landed in Texas on Friday, August 25th. And since then, the state has been pounded by unrelenting winds and rain. And our data point is that is 12. Until Harvey, it had been 12 years since a major Category 3 or higher hurricane made landfall in the United States. So the president went to Corpus Christi, Texas, to assess disaster relief efforts on Tuesday. And he looks to be returning there again on Saturday. So, Annie, let me start with you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how that visit went. How did it go? What did the president do while he was there? Um, he met with law enforcement types and rescue people, you know, overseeing the response group. He talked a lot about himself. He talked a lot about how it was the biggest storm and used the superlatives that are his favorite. I will tell you, this is historic. It's epic what happened. But you know what? It happened in Texas and Texas can handle anything. What he didn't do was actually visit any victims uh, who have had their lives upended by the storm or, you know, there was no photo ops of him hugging people who lost their homes and showing compassion um, that might happen on Saturday. It was hard for him to get to like the actual affected areas because 
it's hard to travel and into those areas when you're the president. But overall, I think he, he it was fine. He did he did well. He stuck he, you know, it wasn't like the Boy Scouts where he went to the Boy Scouts and talked about Jeff Sessions. He went there and stuck to the stuck to talking about the hurricane. Um, so. Uh, I think the only point of criticism was this, you know, it wasn't like this em- empathy compassion tour. It was more showing uh, support for the law enforcement and the rescue operations. Well, you can tell from the the president's rhetoric and uh, the optics of the visit and the administration's immediate response to the disaster that the White House was clearly very conscious uh, of the politics of disaster response. Which Oh, yeah. Meant- Trump was – Obsessed with the storm is what I heard from a lot of people that he like unlike tax reform or health care, he this is something like the the actual details of what was going on on the ground, something he could really dig into and understand. Maybe it's because it fits more with his background and he understands, you know, flood insurance and um how it affects buildings, but he and and I think he understood the politics of he's been in a terrible, terrible place and mood this summer. The darkest he's been is how some people have described it to me, and he kind of latched on to this hurricane as something. And so far, you know, he th- he's not getting blamed for having a negative, bad response. He's. He's latching on to something he can really fix, and it could be a political win for him. Well, Eliana, how did it look from from afar? How did how did they manage the optics, and uh, was it a successful trip? I think it was a successful trip for the president in that he's not getting hammered for any major gaffes, unlike gaffes or missteps, unlike many of his other. Um, trips over the summer and that when people look back on the Trump administration, they're not going to point to Hurricane Harvey and the White House's management of it as uh, a major mistake. It does seem like the response has been adequate uh, in in many regards. And, and the president didn't say things – I mean where our standards are relative, but he didn't say things that were wildly off the mark or inappropriate. What about – going to Missouri the next day. I mean, was that how, – how were people interpreting that? It seemed kind of jarring transition and you saw it on cable. You know, you have the split screen with the hurricane and him talking about tax reform <laughs> and hitting Claire McCaskill. I mean, was that a misstep in, in your view? It's all relative, right? <laughs> I think the, the bar changes, right, with, with uh, yeah. President Trump. I mean, everything we were accustomed to before right. probably is different. Right. But, but since we are on the optics, I have to ask you, Annie, about your uh, your story last week, uh, the, the Melania stiletto story, um, <laughs> which – no, I mean I, I know we're kind of uh, laughing on it, but that was a, a very uh, much publicized, much commented on story. Uh, and, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with it, I would encourage you to read it uh, and see <laughs> you what – You would? I would because – no, and here's why. <laughs> Because I, I thought it was a very I, I that was, was the biggest misstep, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I thought it I thought it was a great read, and and the story what you wrote was uh, about the sideshow surrounding the first lady's footwear as she departed Washington for Houston with with the president, and you know, obviously, the story created uh, quite a stir. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how did that story come about? What kind of responses did you get to that story? And and why do – Are we allowed to curse on here? <laughs> no <laughs> vulgarity. Uh, and why do Melania's wardrobe choices even matter? Why write about that? Um, well, I I got a lot of negative response for that story. Uh, actually, I thought that there might have been like a coordinated troll campaign because I got like the same 
message from a lot of people saying, like, I voted for Hillary, and I still think this is outrageous that you covered this. Um, <laughs> Bottler. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she wore stilettos in this big photo op of the president and the first lady boarding Marine One to go to a hurricane. It just kind of looked like another example of them being out of touch. And we were all talking about it in the newsroom, and it was sort of tearing up Twitter, and people were having strong reactions either way, like, why does anyone care? It doesn't matter to being really outraged. And we were sort of split on saying, like, Politico's ethos is, you know, we supposed to write the stories about like what people are actually talking about. So like it's the stuff that you talk about at a bar. If people are discussing it and having a strong reaction either way, that's a story for us. So in that sense, I thought it was legit to kind of delve into. And to me, it fit with there's been it wasn't like a standalone story. This moment like uh, Ivanka posted a picture of herself on Instagram wearing a five thousand dollar Carolina Herrera gown on the night that the travel ban went into effect in January and refugees were stuck at the airports and it looked really out of touch and she claimed that she felt terrible about it, but Instagram still lives on the internet. Um, So there are these moments when you remember that these women are the face, the public face of the Trump administration and images send messages and become iconic and, and do matter to some extent. It also doesn't matter to like victims of the hurricane who just want some help and they don't care if she showed up in stilettos or sneakers or whatever. They just, I mean, it doesn't matter. So it's on the, it's, I can see why people were mad that we covered it because it really doesn't matter. And, and I can see the argument for it. I actually want to find, so did, did you guys read the Robin Given piece about it? Yeah. It was that basically was just really like good. also the conclusion of that was she looks good too. That's um, Robin Given to the Post, right? Yeah. Post. My take on it is like Robin Given should be the one who wrote that story, not necessarily me. Okay, her headline <laughs> her headline was there was no pretense about Melania Trump's heels, but sometimes a little pretense helps. It was a good point, you know. Like nobody's going to be under the illusion that Melania Trump is going to go, you know, take a bucket and, like, start clearing water out of Houston and get right. her hands dirty. But it's like, come on, just pretend. Well, that's, that's the thing. the whole it's point like, of what Trump's supposed to be doing, going down there right. and patting the whole thing, on the back. I mean, that is the point. The whole thing, like, Trump didn't, the whole thing is, on some level, a photo op. Right. So then to judge them on the photos right. that come out of the photo <laughs> exactly. op is fair game. I feel like we don't see her a lot. Too either so right. That was know. the other point I made in the story that she, she hasn't yet announced a, a, a platform. Right. She doesn't give a lot of speeches. There isn't a lot to judge her on except how she looks, and usually she gets rave reviews for enhancing the president by looking perfect for the occasions that she accompanies him to. Um, but given that we don't know what else she's going to be doing, they say that she's going to be announcing something soon. Um, this is what we have to go by, and she's the first lady of the United States. I don't know. Well, I thought it was an insightful story. Well, thank you. In, in, in any case, uh, Me you too. know, as, as a package, right. I'm, as all a package for, I'm all for writing more about uh, appearances. No, but I, think, I really am. If I your, think they matter a lot in politics. And they people do matter. Think it's not politically also, correct wait, to talk one about more them, point. So I mean, people I'm, probably want us to move on, but like, it's the another, nerds love this. It's also, <laughs> it's also like a side of, I don't know, like sh- shouldn't someone on the team. Be like, that's going to look bad, walking to the Marine One. 
I don't know. Whatever. Well, if we learn anything about the, the politics of Sarah Africa, we... Sanders, if you're listening to this, you should uh, be correcting Melania's footwear in the future. Well, I think if, if we've learned anything about the politics of natural disasters, it's that careers can be made and unmade and the preparations and the aftermath and the optics. And, you know, we've seen that happen before. We actually saw that in 1992 with uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, he, he, he suffered in a material way in, in the uh, election as a result of his uh, – you know the the sort of lackluster performance in the uh, aftermath of a uh, uh, hurricane in Florida. He uh, suffered Jeb. for looking at his watch. He suffered for a lot right. of things, but <laughs> his son learned lessons from that. Jeb uh, did a great job on on some of the uh, hurricanes, his prep and relief efforts. And remember, in, in 04 and 05, eight major storms hit Florida. And I think it kind of burnished his reputation as a top governor then. You saw Chris Christie really burnish his stature. Uh, with his leadership afterwards, uh, and then we saw the the sort of uh, the opposite. George W. Bush yes. bottom out with Katrina, and so uh, well, how does Trump this definitely compare? avoided a, Katrina, a W. Katrina situation so far? Uh, one other thing, there's a silver lining to the storm for Trump politically, which is that it seems like they're going to be able to use it as a way to kick the can down the road on DACA. Um, and that because uh, the attorney general in Texas would be the one who has to, they could they could get an extension on a decision that, as Eliana wrote this week, Trump doesn't want to make, is not eager to make. And it could because they're concerned with the storm in Texas, it could they could extend the deadline. And when you push things, it's just pushing things is good for people who don't want DACA to go away. Well, where do things stand on that right now? I mean, what, what, what is the state of play? I feel like I've seen so many stories saying we've confirmed that he's pulling out and then nothing happens. It's been for about two weeks there have been rumors that Trump is on the precipice of uh, revoking this provision and it hasn't happened. There's been nothing but silence from the White House. And I also got, you know, a raft of nasty emails for writing that the president really is torn about this. But I believe that it's true. Um, the um, the What's the right word? I'm totally blanking right now. But um, getting rid of DACA was one of his core uh, campaign promises. It was part of his larger immigration platform. And I think he's torn between following through on his campaign promise as well as appearing uh, strong and, um, you know, backing law enforcement. Uh, many of his but also dreamers are different. It, right. Like seventy-five percent of Trump supporters don't want these people deported. They're a little different from the rest exactly. of the immigration issue. So yeah. I think he's torn between following through on a campaign promise and, it, you know, many people believe that the provision's unconstitutional. His White House counsel's office believes that. And a genuine sympathy that most people feel for kids who were brought into the country um, the illegally. Kids, they, don't and, have a, through no, they don't have a home to go through, home Through to. no fault of their own. Right. And I think um, we saw in, with the Syria bombing where the president was moved by images of children who were uh, murdered in a, in a gas attack, uh, that he really can be uh, moved to action by um, by images and particularly by things that involve kids. And I, so I, I think he's um, he's... I don't know the way the way that we put it. With he's at war yeah. with himself about it. Um, one, I had a dinner last night with a bunch of immigration experts who are, you know, former Obama people who are working on the issue. Who sounds fascinating? Yeah, I was I was in the heart of the resistance last night, and a point they were making is they 
it's going to like they actually think it would be better if the president just rescinded it, because if he doesn't, it'll go to the courts. And it's sort of cleaner if he just does it, because then Congress has to respond. And Ryan doesn't want this. If it goes to the courts, Cong- Congress, congressional leadership can just say, well, it's in, it's in the hands of the courts now. There's nothing we can do. So they kind of, even though they don't want it to happen, they kind of think politically it would be better if Trump just bites the bullet and does it himself. Because hmm. Congress would, you know, they, they would have the votes to protect these, yeah. these folks. Yeah. You know, and that, so like they you think, said, Ryan and McConnell don't want to. Right. So they think that if the president does it, it sets up. Congress to take the lead and have a fight with the president about this. And there's a bill already out there from right. Lindsey Graham, and we know a bunch of Republicans would support it. Yeah. But it would be one of these things where if you put it up for a vote, it's going to be all Democrats and a minority of Republicans, right. and Republicans hate taking those votes. Right. Okay, well, we can return to DACA in, in our second segment. Let's just get back to one last point uh, that I, I'm hoping we can talk about and explain a little bit to our listeners, which is Ted Cruz and the fight over uh, Ted Cruz – between Ted Cruz and, and Chris Christie and some of the Northeast Republicans over disaster relief. Now, uh, for those people who don't know or missed it, Chris Christie – uh, basically slammed Ted Cruz in the strongest of language on Wednesday. If you saw it on CNN, he called – he said he had no sympathy for Cruz and it's disgusting that Ted Cruz stands in a recovery center with victims. Uh, and this is all rooted back to Cruz's stance and in, in his uh, opposition to Superstorm Sandy relief and, and the fact that lots of Republicans voted against that uh, in Chris a couple Christie of years playing back. his hits. Exactly. It's what, what Christie does best. And so is that was that a fair attack on Ted Cruz, Burgess, the idea that it was disgusting or that Cruz and, and some other Republicans may have had ulterior motives? I mean, Republicans in disaster relief is it's always a parochial issue, right? Like, you know, you go to the New York and New Jersey Republicans who supported Sandy Aid, you know, which is what Christie is referring to. The majority of Republicans in Congress voted against that, not just Texas, but, you know, across the country. And you've seen similar dynamics uh, in other disasters is that the the people from that general region will vote for it and maybe a few moderates will vote for it. And then the rest of the Republican Party opposes it because they think we should slash spending if we're going to do emergency uh, relief here. And so that's sort of catching up right now to these Texas Republicans, most of whom both senators, not just Cruz, but also John Cornyn voted against the Sandy bill and and most of the House delegation did too. So I I don't think this is going to go away because what's going to happen is there will be one to, you know, four maybe installments of different payments for Hurricane Harvey. And there's going to be something in there that someone's going to single out as wasteful spending and it's going to become a huge inter-party fight. And so – I think this is sort of a preview of the Republican Party is going to be battling amongst themselves again over how much money and, and you know, mitigation money. Should we be spending that or should we only be rebuilding? I think this is going to be a pretty uh, brutal debate for them. Is it fair to say that though that uh, by demanding uh, immediate relief for his own state in the wake of Hurricane Harvey – Yet denying it and putting it under increased scrutiny in in the Northeast that it carries the the whiff hypocrisy is that is that a, fa- a fair criticism I, to make? I think it's fair, but I don't think you would center it only on Ted Cruz. I think it's a larger larger issue with the Republican Party and spending. You know, they like it when it helps their states, and they don't like it when it goes to someone else's state. Is it not true? I I don't know, but is it not true that the, the objection to the Sandy relief was that the bill was like look was 
packed with other stuff that was tangential to it. Mm-hmm. And Cruz is, wants like a cleaner bill, right? I, I haven't followed this all that closely, but that is part of it. But you know, also it takes a really long time to spend this disaster money, there is still money from that Sandy bill that hasn't been spent yet. Mm-hmm. And that's very common in these disaster right, bills. Okay. Um, you know, the actual things that they were singling out this week um, were pretty small portions of that bill. You know, not, we're not talking billions of pork. We're talking millions of pork. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about a $50 billion mm-hmm. bill. That's not a major uh, piece of it. So I mean, I, I think that it's definitely a ripe issue for reporters to cover is the you know, the seeming hypocrisy of this and, you know, what makes it even more of an issue in my mind is how sensitive the Texas Republicans are about this issue yeah. right now. Well, maybe I'm looking too much into this and Eliana, feel free to call out uh, BS if you think I'm wrong in this. But I, I can't help but feel that they that this is the way it worked with Hurricane uh, or Superstorm Sandy, that had it been almost any other region in the country Everyone would have been on board because of a, a bipartisan tra- a tradition of supporting emergency relief. And I think what was different there was that it was the Northeast. And in fact, it was New York and Blue, and New, Blue Jersey, mm-hmm. two blue state strongholds where there aren't that many Republicans and where many of the Republicans there are kind of looked on as apostates or heretics and not real Republicans anyway. And that is why many Republicans, including the Texans, voted against them. Is there any truth to that or am I t- completely off the mark? I think there's some truth to that, but I also think, you know, I went back and I looked I looked only at the Senate vote, but I believe this also played out in the House where a lot a lot of the Gulf Coast Republicans who um got aid for Katrina supported the Sandy bill as a way of saying like we got your back. You know, you guys voted for this when we needed it. We're going to vote for this now that you need it. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, that was one of the attacks that Pete King had this week on Senator Cruz was, you know, you you wouldn't vote for our disaster relief bill, but I'm going to vote for yours. So it's it's definitely going to be sort of interesting to watch. Uh, I think it will play out this way no matter what region of the country it is. But I do think it was magnified by the fact that Republican leaders aren't generally from New York or New Jersey, right? Okay, last question. This is a lightning round question for you, Annie. Totally out of the blue. This is sort of the unicorns and rainbows uh, segment of the program. Do you have any? Is there any reason to think that this disaster might bring people together? Could could the Im- images of this humanitarian disaster have a unifying effect either on Washington or the country that'll somehow soften, erode, break through the current polarization, or are we right back to throttling each other as soon as the cameras leave uh, the Houston area? I think we have a moment, but we're heading into September where there's about to be like major fights between the president and Congress, and I, I'm sure he'll be attacking Mitch M. on Twitter within weeks. We uh, <laughs> and and so I, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't think it will necessarily carry into it a very difficult fall that the president's about to have. Okay, well, that's a good segue into our next segment. Members of Congress return to the Capitol Tuesday, September 5th, and kick off the fall uh, phase of this uh, session, and their to-do list is stacked. They've got a mere 30 days from today to pass a government funding bill to prevent a shutdown. And on top of all of that, there's the question of passing emergency funding. So uh, let me throw this one to you, Burgess. What is September going to look like in Washington and in Congress, and and what should we be watching for? Well, 
you, you the biggest thing is the debt ceiling actually and and that intersects with the government funding deadline on September 30th because four years ago we had a government shutdown it was politically painful for Republicans and it hurt the economy, but it's nothing like a debt crisis. And these two things are now tied together. So I think what we're looking for is, is Congress going to take these items that are all expiring and need to get done and roll them all into a package that conservatives probably hate and and Trump will be confronted with, will you endorse this or is this no good because it doesn't find your border wall? Um, or are they going to try to do this piecemeal, you know, do a, a quick disaster bill, then do a clean debt ceiling increase, and then do a government funding bill or have a shutdown fight over the border wall? So I think the first question is, is it segmented or is there just one huge fight over one huge bill? And right now, people that we're talking to seem to think that you're going to get a two to three month government funding uh, extension increase the debt ceiling through the midterms and then have a down payment on the uh, hurricane relief. Uh, but it's not going to be that simple. It sounds like it, that's something that everybody would go for at this second, but people are not in town yet. And we haven't heard the president endorse a clean debt ceiling increase yet. And that's something that people in Congress are going to need to hear to vote for something that's going to increase the debt and conservatives aren't going to like. And what about the shutdown? Is a shutdown really a possibility? I mean, do you, do you guys think that in, in Republican-controlled Washington, Republican-occupied Washington, where they hold House, Senate, and the White House, that we really could see a shutdown? It's all up to the president, in my view. The dynamics haven't changed since April when we had a fight over funding the border wall. The president asked for uh, a down payment on the border wall in April, and Congress sort of stiffed him on that. And Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell don't want to see a shutdown, and they definitely don't want to see a debt default. And if the president insists on border wall funding, that's how we get there because Democrats, this, they believe this is a winning issue for them. If they just hold steady and don't and say, no, we're not giving you a penny for the wall. We'll give you money for border security. We'll give you money for staffing the border. We'll give you money for new technology, but we're not giving you any money for the wall. So that's how you get to a shutdown. I do believe it's a possibility. You know, Right now, the conventional wisdom says Congress kicks the fight to December. Um, on this uh, to avoid tying it up with the debt ceiling. I, I mean, if I'm somebody who's trying to get wall funding, I don't understand why the dynamic is any better in December. You have fewer must-pass vehicles and you have less leverage and the dynamics don't change. So to me, if they want to have this fight over the wall, it's going to happen in September. Or if they kick it to December, I think they're still likely to get rolled or we'll have another shutdown. Well, yeah, who's I, okay with the shutdown? Well, I was told something interesting um, from somebody on the Hill, which was, you know, if the president president hadn't publicly made uh, such a big deal about getting funding for the wall, mm. that House Republicans were saying they they would have gotten him some funding for the wall. But now that he's made it such a big deal that they're they're reluctant to do so. Does that? Uh, I think that's right. I mean, I yeah. think if if they were just really quiet about it, which is not a very Trumpish thing yeah, to be quiet exactly about it. Exactly like the president. So I mean, if but I mean if. They could shift money around and sort of quietly give him what he wants and he doesn't brag about it right. or really talk right. about it. I honestly think they could probably make that happen. I don't know how much money it is, but but when he says, give me the money for the wall. Or we're going to shut down the government. Right. It, it just helps Democrats you know, find their footing right now. And I saw a poll on Fox News yesterday. The wall is getting less popular the longer Trump is president. So I feel like Democrats, they want to have this fight. They are not going to say that, but I think – they think the public would be on their side. We're not going to shut the government down. 
unless you do this wall funding and people don't want the wall funding. And so what is the president standing in, in the House and the Senate among Republicans at this point in his presidency, uh, what, eight months in and as we come back, uh, as Congress comes back from its summer recess? Like how how powerful is he? Uh, how much clout does he have with members of Congress? Is it less than when he became president? Where Where's that? It's certainly got to be less. I mean the, the health care debacle was – partially attributable to the White House. They, they really were never clear about what they wanted. Trump was all over the place, didn't seem to understand the policy. Um, at the end, right before the bill failed, and they, they kind of gave it a, another college try right at the end of July when McConnell had already declared things dead. I think that was the president being somewhat effective, but he wasn't able to sustain that. And then you transition into a summer where, as Annie was saying, you know, he's attacking Mitch M. He's calling for the filibuster rules to be changed. He's tangling with Bob Corker. He's tangling with Jeff Flake. None of these things are are helpful to the president's relationship with Congress. So I, I feel like it's definitely a weaker relationship. Um, but, you know, again, ahead of September, it's all about what the president wants. You know, the Republican leaders do not want to shut down the government, but they're going to have a big problem if the president asks for border funding and you know now they're against the president's base because the president's base wants the border wall. But aren't members uh, uh, cowed by the president? I mean they know a lot the, – the base is still with the president. Aren't they worried at all? No, I don't think – I don't really think that they are. Dean uh, Heller maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but why not, Ilya? Uh Look, a lot of these mem members ran ahead of the president in their districts and same with many, many senators. Um, I think people have a misconception that Trump is – that Trump puts fear in the heart of a lot of these people when it, the, the reality is that they carried him, not vice versa. Um, the, the Pat Toomey's of the world and the Rob Portman's mm -hmm. and, and so on mm -hmm. and um, it's not the case that these voters are going to punish them for defying Trump. Um, or, I don't think so. Um, I also think, look, that senators and uh, congressmen had no no respect for Trump at the beginning of his administration after the campaign. And I don't think that their respect for him has increased. Um, that's the reason that you saw them pass a bill like the Russia sanctions bill that he was vehemently opposed to. And I think that bills like that, um, you know, with they passed it with veto proof majorities that so something like that would have been absolutely inconceivable in a previous Republican administration where you saw a Republican-controlled um, Congress pass a bill that a Republican president was absolutely opposed to. But I think that we're likely to see more bills like that if the president continues to behave the way he has. One thing to watch is this bill from Senators Tillis and Coons. It's a bipartisan bill that would sort of protect uh, the, the Mueller investigation uh, into into Trump and Russia. And right now there's no other Republican co-sponsors, but this could be a place where people start gathering steam and showing, well, here's how here's me showing independence from the president, and it's not undermining traditional Republican conservative priorities. So I'm watching that bill to see if, if Tillis is able to convince other Republicans to sign on there. It's going to show more breaks with Trump and, and sort of prove her point that People may not be as scared of him as the conventional wisdom would say. That's really interesting. Uh, Coons obviously is a Democrat from Delaware. Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina, a state that Donald Trump carried. What, right. What's driving Tillis's thinking there on this? I mean, is it straightforward? Is, is there more to it than it looks or is it as straightforward as it seems? Well, 
I think part of there's Tillis's own politics. That could be a tough Senate race in 2020. Um, you know, that was one of the few bright spots for Democrats in 2016 was winning the governor's mansion there. And so I think Tillis is definitely tacking to the center a little bit. He, he's not, you know, he's definitely a pro-Trump guy, but he's not, you know, a bomb-throwing type. And he's going to be somebody who who's going to try to say, I can work with the other party uh, there. But I also, you know, I think that this is seen as if things keep getting worse between Capitol Hill and the president and the Russia investigation continues to deepen, I think this would be a place where Republicans decide, hey, I can be safe here and show a break with the president uh, by signing onto this bill. Now, here's a it occurs to me, and this is really strange. We've, we've come this far into this segment talking about the Congress and its fall agenda, and we haven't talked about tax reform. Uh, and why exactly is that? I mean, is that because there? You guys are gripped with skepticism about the ability to actually accomplish anything on tax reform. Why hasn't that come up yet? Why haven't we talked about that? Well, there was so much focus on health care that they punted all these other issues to September. And, and it actually goes even deeper than we discussed. There's a federal aviation bill uh, that needs to be done, a flood insurance bill, and children's health insurance. These are all things that expire at the end of September that Congress did not deal with in the summer because they were so focused on Obamacare repeal. So just the calendar, you, you're immediately in October if you're talking about doing any sort of uh, entrepreneurial legislation, which is how I would put tax reform. You know, it's not pegged to a deadline. It's sort of a broader idea from the party. I do think the prospects for tax reform are better than Obamacare repeal because the politics aren't as brutal for Republicans. But it's going to take them a long time. They're going to be punching each other in the face over you know, small changes to the tax code, how it affects one state, you know, might hurt another state. And so I, I think it's going to be far more complicated than it's been presented as we'll be able to pass this really quickly, you know, and they may end up just having to hit the emergency button and do temporary tax cuts because they can't agree on anything. That's what I think. Temporary tax cuts. What does that look like, like roughly? I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I think there's a reason that tax reform had. This is what Paul Ryan says. There's a reason tax reform hasn't been done for 30 years because it's incredibly hard, and uh, I just don't see. It, it's unclear to me whether, whether, if, or whether the White House is going to play a constructive role in this. And I think that the Republicans learned the hard way on health care that Congress can't completely drive um, new legislation. That the White House right. has to play a constructive role in this. Right. Here's the part that I don't understand, and maybe you guys can explain it to me. This idea that uh, this is going to be a winning issue for for Donald Trump with with voters or the the, the Republican Congress. The idea that this is a populist initiative. Uh, I mean, I just don't see how does that drive voters to the polls in 2018? How does it make a big enough difference in their lives to excite them to get out there? Uh, am, am I wrong? I mean, what, what's definitely the, the cor corporate tax rates are not going to drive you know, people to the polls. Yeah, I mean, certainly not the the Trump voters who showed up in in 2016. That's not what animates them. Uh, right. I, I guess I just, I'm having a hard time understanding the politics behind them. Obviously, it, there's a, a an element of constituency politics with the, with uh, Republican constituency groups, but I just you know at the grassroots level, it's hard for me to understand how this really excites the base and gets them out in these. To, to me, that's how, that's sort of what's driving people talking about a more quick calendar than this may be realistic because if you do it this year, maybe people see less taxes next year and maybe that translates to more enthusiasm for the Republican Party. I mean who wants to pay more taxes? Nobody. Um, but that's really the only way I could see this motivating people is if it actually helps 
their pocketbooks. And and they would need to pass something in the next three months to get to get there. How about Obamacare repeal? Uh, I mean, are we going to hear anything? Is, is that dead? It feels dead to me. I mean, the Senate is going to return and do bipartisan hearings on market stabilization. And I think you could see that wrapped up in the government shutdown fight, you know, because otherwise it's going to be up to the president whether he continues these subsidies that help people buy insurance on the Obamacare markets. Um, I think the idea of partisan repeal has been a political loser for the Republican Party. And I think you've seen that over the recess. Everybody was saying maybe over the recess our guys get killed back at home and they come back and they're ready to vote for this. I, I haven't seen that at all. And so how does that motivate people to repeal Obamacare when they couldn't do it before? I, I don't see it. What a, am I wrong, Eliana? I think it's dead. Dead, dead? I do. I just think – uh, the Republicans, I, they, I think they were completely unserious about it from the beginning. It's unclear to me that I think Mitch McConnell was indifferent to it. I'm not sure he was outright opposed to it, but I think he was indifferent to the repeal because he thought that the politics were of it were perilous. And, you know, Democrats for, for passing Obamacare, they took shellackings in two midterm elections. And I think that the result of the repeal would have been similar for Republicans. And there's this idea out there, a, a myth that these things are supposed to be politically costless. Um, you know, it, changing people's health care, um, I think, comes at a political cost that the Democrats were willing to pay and that the Republicans are not because uh, they're less they're less serious about the issue, less comfortable talking about it, less comfortable advocating for their beliefs about it. And so, you know, we, we've covered, I think, the spectrum of, of issues before Congress. We didn't even talk about infrastructure. Is that because there's just no room at the end for infrastructure right now? Unless somehow it's tied for tax reform. I, I don't – I mean nobody has an infrastructure bill. There's no real plan. Nobody's talking about it. Um, I do think you know, if you rewind the year and you go back to January and that's the first thing the president comes out of the gate with even though the Republican leadership doesn't really want it because it's more spending and, and not necessarily their campaign promises on Obamacare. I think the whole year plays out differently if you start with infrastructure because Democrats – that's something that's going to have to bring Democrats to the table because they've been talking about infrastructure for years, ever since I've been covering Congress. Um, and, and so – but now there would, that would have to be such a massive pivot away from tax reform unless you're going to link the two, which you didn't hear the president say yesterday, um, that I, I believe it's a bit of a pipe dream uh, in the immediate future and possibly in this entire Congress. I, I just think tax reform is going to take way longer and people are talking about I agree. that brings us into you know I don't know February March next year possibly and now we're in the middle of primaries. Do Republicans want to do, bring up infrastructure in the middle of their primary season? Probably not. So uh, Eliana, I'll give you the last word today. If if you had to guess of, of, of all the issues that we've talked about here, what does what animates the president most? What do you think he cares the most about or wants to accomplish the most? Uh, and would consider it a success? Or what, what's closest to his heart right now of all the things we just talked about? I don't really think that this is a policy presidency. I think what animates him the most is probably I think he'll be animated about the midterm elections because it's a very clear win-loss scenario for him where um, there's a numerical balance sheet. And I think he's animated by campaign rallies. Um, I also think that there's it's, – it's more of a cultural presidency. So 
I think he's animated by press conferences and by driving a broader, yeah, cultural message. And so I, I don't, I don't think he's. Um, I don't. I don't think policy issues animate him. He seemed to enjoy that little dig on McCaskill. I thought yeah. that was pretty telling yesterday. <laughs> Thank you guys for for being here, Burgess Thanks, Everett. Uh, it was wonderful to have you here, and Eliana. Come back, Eliana. As always, it was excellent to have you here. Thank you to our listeners. If you like the show, remember to subscribe, rate, and write a review in Apple Podcasts. And please feel free to email us at nerdcast at politico.com. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our researcher, Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator, Bill Cookman. We'll talk to you next week.